Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 24, This Side of Paradise. We hope you're very happy right where you are, and you're not going anywhere anytime soon. You just stay right there, and don't worry about things like deadly radiation. It's time for another Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Bertold Ray, but you can call me Ken. Each week we watch an episode of Star Trek, then take it apart, examine the pieces, try to figure out the messages, morals, and meanings of a given episode, and whether any or all of it is applicable today. This week, it's the Summer of Love meets the Little Shop of Horrors, and they do that this side of paradise. I see what you did there with Virtual Ray. You like that? You like that? I did. I did. I didn't know you were such a uh, Brecht fan either. <laughs> or somebody on Star Trek is yeah. a Brecht fan. Don't, don't cross me, because apparently I will try to kill every bit of animal life I can. Well, but it takes about a week. So we, 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 we have a really good week. That's true. You know. Yeah, don't yeah. worry. Don't worry right now. Right now, you'll be fine. Yeah. But uh, if you come back in a week, I'll be more than a bit surprised. And remember, guys, if you want to reach us and talk about what you like about Star Trek, you can find us at Facebook, Skype, and Twitter at the handle Mission Log Pod. Or you can call us at 323-522-5641. You can even email us, missionlog at roddenberry.com. And don't forget to check out our very nice home on the internet, missionlogpodcast.com. Remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. About the only thing that I would ask that people not do is, um, well, curses out. I guess there are two things. Curses out. Although, you know, <laughs> if you can be original about it, go for it. That could um, be fun. The other thing, though, please, please, please do not send us uh, Star Trek trivia because that is the bailiwick of Mr. John Champion. I know you're very excited about this, Ken, because this is by one of your favorite writers, Nathan Butler. I have no idea who you're talking about. Well, of course you don't, because there is no Nathan Butler. In fact, the writer of this episode is Gerald, a.k.a. Jerry Soul. Now, here's the thing. He wrote the script. In fact, he wrote a script called The Way of the Spores, and it made its way up through production at Star Trek, and Gene Roddenberry looked at it and said, no, this is not going to work. So he handed it off to Dorothy Fontana, a.k.a. DC Fontana, and said, look, if you can fix this, you get to be story editor on Star Trek. And she did, and she was, and then we get this episode. But uh, Nathan Nathan Butler, a.k.a. Jerry Soule, he was not ha- happy about that at all. So he went under a pseudonym for his credit. Do we know what it was that displeased uh, Gene Roddenberry about the original script? Well, I don't know specifically what displeased him, but I do know that the original script was very different. Um, in fact, the script was more focused on Sulu, um, and that it just didn't work. Now, I'm sure that would have made George Takei very happy if the show had been about Sulu, but um, when Dorothy rewrote it, she's the one who made Spock the centerpiece of the show. And I think that really worked because as we'll see, we get to explore a lot about Spock here. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, And Hey, uh, there's a lot of soundtrack goodness to rehash here. Uh, Check out the cage, check out shore leave. We get a lot of the audio cues from those shows. It may make you fondly remember 
those shows. <laughs> and so um, I thought that was kind of cool. I like it when you hear little bits and pieces that get reused. And, um, you know, I also really like to point out the filming locations of uh, where Star Trek was shot when they got out of the studio. Now, I know that you and I are both Disney fans. Mm-hmm. So we'll please you to know that the Golden Oak Ranch, which is actually also the Disney ranch, it is a, a big plot of land up near Santa Clarita. Uh, that is owned by Disney and they use for outdoor shooting. Um, is that where they filmed Spin and Marty? Uh, maybe. It may well be. I thought I recognized that tree. Uh, see? There yeah. you go. You got a good eye, young man. Thank you very um, much. Uh, but you know what? It's just down the road from Vasquez Rocks. Very about cool. a 15-minute drive or so. So they shot a lot of it there. And then they moved a little bit to Bronson Canyon, which is literally just right up the road from me. That's in Griffith Park which is a huge, uh, you know, forested area here in L.A. Um, Many of you may know the Griffith Park Observatory. uh, The zoo is there, all of that stuff. So they shot a a good deal of that in Bronson Canyon as well. And a lot of Star Trek has been shot there. So definitely not the last time we will see that area. And we also have to mention uh, the co-star here, Jill Ireland. She was, at the time... She was dating Charles Bronson. They would later be married. Um, But technically, while they were shooting this, she was still married to David McCollum. Uh, Their divorce would finalize only a couple of weeks after this episode was shot. I'm a fan of David McCollum because, of course, he was Ilya Kuryakin on The Man from UNCLE. Um, But while Jill Ireland was making this episode, it is reported that Charles Bronson, who she was dating at the time, was there on set every now and then. Of course, they would later be married. And sadly, uh, Jill Ireland would pass away at the young age of 54 from breast cancer. Uh, That was in 1990, I believe. Wow. This is kind of a downer way to end trivia. Do you have have anything else? Well, hey, here's the good news. That, that she's fabulous in this episode. She is. Fa- and, yeah, she's very um, good in this episode, yes. Yeah, and, and she definitely had a, a rich career um, uh, outside of Star Trek as well. So uh, glad we get to enjoy her work yes. here in this episode. Sad that we are to lose her. We will always have Omicron SETI 3. Old Elias Sandoval had a farm. E-I-E-I-O. And on his farm, he had no animals of any sort. E I E I O. Prologue. Hey, let's drop in on Omicron SETI 3, shall we? It's been a couple of years, and we assume all the colonists who went there to build an agricultural community are dead, since there's no way they could survive the hit of radiation pounding this planet. But wait! The landing party discovers Elias Sandoval, one of the original colonists, and a few more of his crew, alive and well. Act 1. What we have here is a mystery. These colonists should all be dead from radiation, but this is an idyllic, thriving farm. Kirk breaks up a landing party to find some answers. In Sandoval's house... We now meet a fetching young botanist named Layla. She comes with lovely blonde hair and her very own backlight to make her look extra ethereal. Cue that dreamy music. Kirk, of course, is smitten right away. He can't take his eyes off of her. In fact, if I didn't know better, I would say that they had a thing for each other in another life. Wait. Uh, Ken, hang on. I, I'm very sorry. I think I'm reading the wrong script. 
Um, it, well, it's Spock, actually, that you're thinking of. Oh, I, know, I know it's weird because it seems yeah. like it would be Kirk, but uh, no, it's Spock. Okay, yeah, I totally, completely wrong with that. It was not Kirk. Yes, it is Spock, who just seems a little love-struck in his button-down Vulcan way. Kirk says he has a mission to examine the colony and its inhabitants. Sandoval explains to Kirk that they all like the simple life. No weapons, no machinery, no phones, no lights, no motor cars, not a single luxury. But it's peaceful, harmonious, and they are in no hurry to leave, even if it means denying Starfleet orders. It's kind of weird, though. There are no animals either, no cows in the cow barn. There aren't even any insects. Also, McCoy finds that everyone is in absolutely perfect health. Even old wounds are gone. It's a little too perfect. Spock is wandering the gardens with Layla and getting a little testy about not understanding the secrets of Omicron Seti 3. Before we know it, there's a triffid. Well, it's some kind of plant that blows spores all up in Spock's face. It must have been painful because Spock is reacting like he just got hit with mace, but Layla talks him down. Suddenly... Spock is calm and serene. Is that happiness I see on his face? I believe it is. He says he loves Layla, and he goes in for a big old Vulcanian kiss. Act two. Kirk is looking for Spock. Spock is too busy looking at clouds and talking about rainbows. He's definitely been drinking the Kool-Aid. All that concerns Kirk is getting these colonists off the planet. But meanwhile, his own crew is being hit with a heavy dose of those plant spores. Everyone's acting goofy and McCoy is just acting really genial and a whole lot more southern. He's so generous, in fact, that he's helping to beam up hundreds of those plants to the Enterprise. All those on board are having a harder time concentrating on their jobs. And Kirk goes back to the ship at once to find out what's going on. The crew he finds are all abandoning their posts and waiting in line to beam down to Omicron Seti 3. This is a mutiny. Really, it is the friendliest mutiny you'll ever see. Act 3. Everyone is gone from the Enterprise except Kirk. He's still in touch with the colony, and all McCoy is thinking about is making a mint julep, which... Really doesn't sound like a bad idea right about now. Kirk beams down in time to get a little exposition from Spock and Sandoval. The spores are organisms that are providing the sense of euphoria. Whatever they are, they came from space and actually love soaking up that deadly Berthold radiation. Using a human body as a host, they just kind of hang out and make you feel all giddy. Kirk is not happy about this, but everyone else is really, really happy about this. Kirk returns to the empty Enterprise to think and record a log entry. Then one of those plants uh, walks. Yeah, it sneaks right up on him and shoots him in the face with spores. It's happy time now. Kirk is ready to beam down to the planet and join everyone else in looking at clouds and talking about rainbows. He even goes so far as to pack a tiny suitcase of stuff from his quarters. But wait, while packing... Kirk starts thinking about all the awesome things that he does as a starship captain. At the last minute in the transporter room, the conflict in him wells up, and he realizes that his anger and aggression defeats the effect of the spores. He contacts Spock and convinces him to beam up one last time for some equipment. Psych! Actually, when Spock arrives, Kirk is ready to hurl a large barrage of verbal insults and beat him up if necessary. Act 4. It worked! The anger aroused in Spock allows him to come to his senses. He and Kirk set about to create a transmitter that will shake up the colonists enough to get angry and lose the effect of the spores. 
Spock does contact Layla one last time and beams her up to the ship. She's aware that he's not the fun-loving, romantic version of Spock anymore. He's back to Mr. Logical. And her emotional outburst over losing him again actually defeats the spores. The transmitter is now in place, and a few treatments from the Enterprise wreaks all kinds of havoc back on the planet. Everyone just starts wailing away on each other with fists, farming equipment, whatever is handy. But the big upshot is that they're all back to themselves. The crew and the colonists beam back up to the Enterprise, and on the bridge, McCoy laments the loss of paradise, while Spock says this incident was the only time in his life he had ever felt happy. Can I argue with you about one thing really quickly? Oh, do it. Do it. Because uh, everything in there is spot on, um, except it's not Kirk's aggression. It's just the strong emotion, I think, of leaving the Enterprise. It's sort of the pride of what he had done in the past. Well, yeah, he, he's he's conflicted. Yeah. And, but, but I think, you know, I, we're going to get into this in the topics, definitely, for sure here. Um, but, you know, we're back again to this idea of Kirk having this seething anger, this aggressive side right under the surface. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, okay, he's okay. looking at a he's looking at a medal in his office. Yes, and it's like, oh man, I do these cool things where I fly starships and I get medals and blah blah blah, and and it, it's fighting with him. Um, so well, then, by the time he gets to the transporter, he can't take it anymore. It's his love hate relationship with his love of the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. But we can get to, we can get to all that again in a bit if you want to. You've got for sure. You've got other stuff. Go. Well, there's all kinds of stuff in this episode. Um, I, I thought it was very interesting that when the landing party are down there right away, that Sulu is surprised that there are no horses and pigs or dogs at the settlement. And then Kirk says at some point, oh, yeah, they would have come here with all of that stuff. And I thought, well, this is a really interesting idea about colonizing space. I, is it this Noah's Ark thing where they put a bunch of horses on a spaceship for a year and say, okay. Good luck cleaning up this mess by the time you get to the planet we're going, you know. Well, you get the same problem with people, don't you? Yeah, well, yeah, but, you know, we we don't make as big a mess as a horse, I don't (laughs) think. And and speaking of farming in space, um, obviously the conveniences that they were using standing sets, standing locations. Right. Um, But, you know, I thought it was interesting that uh, here we are in the 23rd century and everything looks like a 19th century farming community. Yeah, it's a little bit unclear what the uh, what the colonist goal was. Like, Mm -hmm. I can't tell were they there trying new farming experiments or were they like sort of uh, like a nouveau non-religious Amish that were trying to get away from, you know, you okay, we'll use a machine to get us here. Right. But then we're done with machines. And so we're going yeah. to like build, yeah. you know, houses that we could build with our hands. Right. And, uh, you know, it, 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 that, that was kind of weird. But right, obviously, I mean, what it really is, is we need a set. Oh, look, a set. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. But, it, but it does seem like there's a philosophical point of view behind that. You the, know? But not one that's adequately explored. Right. Right. But, I mean, so it just doesn't become a thing. There's a lot in this episode, so, you know, that we don't yeah. get too much into that is fine. Right. Hey, but you know what we do get to, and I know that you'll be very excited about this. If we make it to the 23rd century, Samsonite makes it along with us. Yes, you can get <laughs> fine quality luggage in the 23rd century because Kirk himself has one. Yeah. It was, it was also interesting, the stuff that he was packing. He packs very light. Well, he takes that wraparound green thing that you love so much. 
I love it so much. His formal captain's thing, even though like the second that Spock gets hit with the spores, he also gets hit with a green jumpsuit like everybody else on Omicron Seti 3. <laughs> right, right. Which is kind of, <laughs> it's kind of weird because yeah. they don't have um, machines yeah. you know, to make these things. So I guess they just had extra uniforms laying around. Uh, maybe. Like he got hit with the spores and then Elias came really quickly and said, what are you, like a 44 long? Yeah, I think I, I, got, I got something for you. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me look. <laughs> right. Nobody's right. ever died, so it's not like we have extra. And yet, here's an extra one. Go house. Yeah. Well, whatever the case, I'm going to have to do a lot of laundry because people do pack light. <laughs> That's true. And, uh, and they get dirty in the fields. That is true as well. Yeah. But hey, speaking of somebody who's right at home mm-hmm. in the farming community here, let's talk about McCoy a little bit. Oh. Uh, because here's the thing. when I, I guess when he gets happy... <laughs> And and he's got a drink in him. He gets really, really southern. Yep. Although a bit wrong, I think. We Uh-oh. don't know for sure. I looked it up because there was something okay. that didn't strike me about uh, about his mint julep fascination. I understand liking a good mint julep. I like a good mint julep myself. But when he's trying to tempt Kirk into one, he says, have you ever had a good Georgia-style mint julep? He's <laughs> like, yo, have you ever had good New Jersey barbecue? I mean, it's not – and I'm not saying there's not a good barbecue place in New Jersey, but uh, the mint julep is is um, most closely associated with the state of Kentucky. Um, right. Partly because it's made with bourbon, which can only come from Kentucky. I read in Wikipedia, so take that for what it's worth, that Daniel Webster mm-hmm. from Kentucky – is that right? Daniel Webster? That, that sounds right to me. I'm not sure if that's right. Now yeah. I can't remember who it was, but somebody – it's not Daniel Webster. Ah, cried. I can't remember. But anyway, it was somebody from Kentucky who actually introduced the mint julep to the D.C. area back in the late 17, early 18, blah, blah, blahs. Mm-hmm. And um, also, uh, it's it's a drink that's closely associated with the Kentucky Derby. So here's the deal. I don't know anything about American history, as I just proved. <laughs> don't mess with my brown liquor. All right? I wouldn't think of it. Yeah. So his his his, you know... His Georgia mint julep. Yeah, you got a drink that's like full of peach? Yeah, go to Georgia for that. No question. And other kinds of alcohol, I'm sure. Some sort of shine, probably. Any kind of Maybe. whiskey you want. Yeah, you know. But, you know. Let's head to Kentucky if we're going to do the mint julep thing. That's all I'm saying. I'm glad we got that cleared up. Yeah, Matt, well, it was important. You, In fact, you know, we're, we're going to have a good, fine Georgia mint julep. I actually thought about making this one of the prime topics of this episode. <laughs> that's how serious I take my bourbon. I bet. Um, what, what about Kirk antagonizing Spock? Because it, it made me think of Android Kirk and what, what are little girls made of? Yeah. You know, he's on this spinny, uh, you know, the spin art thing. Yeah. And uh, he's muttering to himself, you jackrabbit, half breed, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I can't and, remember. And Android the, Kirk can just spit it out. I can't remember what the exact insult was. And I've got hundreds of pages of notes literally now. At least mm-hmm. over a hundred pages of notes right here in front of me, but I couldn't, I can't find it exactly. But yeah, I'm gonna put that on uh, eBay in fourteen years. Totally, yeah. absolutely. This will be in the uh, no. This will go in the archives. Right. True. The <laughs> Roddenberry Star Trek podcast archives, which will be down yep. the block and around the corner from <laughs> the Roddenberry. Ar- well, okay, you hop a bus actually, and <laughs> right. And when you get to the bus station, there's a locker, and I'll give you the combination. That'll be the archive. Um, all right, you mutinous, disloyal, computerized half-breed. We'll see about you deserting my ship. You're an overgrown jackrabbit, an elf with an overactive thyroid. A Vulcan never lived who had an ounce of integrity. And don't make me talk about your mama. That's the yeah, interesting that's thing. Going. Yeah, yeah, it's actually it's actually when he starts playing the dozens on him, like talking to me, <laughs> your mama's such a library, or, you know, <laughs> whatever she was, stack yeah. of books, I can't remember, um, that he gets angry. But also, hey, guess what Spock is? 
according to the uh, now according to the insult, maybe Vulcan is actually a pejorative. I don't know. According to the to the stream of insults, uh, yeah. Kirk says a Vulcan never lived who had an ounce of integrity. Not a Vulcanian, even though other times in this episode they refer to Spock as a Vulcanian. Yeah, true. We're starting the transition. True. And true. don't make me talk about your mama. No, <laughs> right. Hey, and speaking of Vulcan slash Volcanians, yes. you know, we've heard it a million times before in, in science fiction where the alien has some clever thing like, oh, you couldn't pronounce my name. You know, <laughs> <laughs> well, it, clearly you're speaking English, Mr. Alien. So uh, just, just tell us what, you know, does it have clicks or uh, guttural sounds that may be difficult? Uh, would it be easier if I were a native uh, German speaker? I don't know. But it made me think of um, who's the Superman enemy whose name I will mispronounce, Mr. Mitzelplick? I don't know. No, you've never. He's a little. Uh, he he kind of looks like the the Lucky Charms guy. Yeah, he's, he's like a he's Superman like, enemy. He's like yeah. Batmite, but evil. Well, right. Batmite was also evil, but he was evil in his own way, as far as I was concerned. But yeah, yeah, yeah like that. I don't remember his name. No, I was talking actually the other day. Um, a friend of mine, um, uh, my friend Clayton, said something about Spock's first name. And I had forgotten that Spock had a first name. And so, you know, on this podcast that we we're recording, I said, Spock had a first name. He's like, yeah, but humans can't pronounce it. And we finally decided that it's not that humans can't pronounce it. It's just that it's so cute when Vulcans do it because it's kind of like <laughs> it's like it's kind of like dolphin squeak that the Vulcans are like, no, we can't we can't let anybody know about this. It's not that, it's not that they couldn't do it. It's just um, no one will take us seriously because then we'll be like <laughs> far too cutesy poo for the galaxy. I I still maintain it as either TJ or Eddie. <laughs> Eddie Spock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How nice it was, to see Spock happy for once. And really nice of Captain Kirk to wipe that happiness out. Well, it's not a game I intend to play, but uh, it seems to me that uh, lately we've been doing, uh, every week we do moments in sexism. So let's go ahead and quickly dispense with this week's, if you're cool with that, John. Um, Spock asks Layla why the colonists aren't dying. And we don't know about the spores yet. Layla says that she'll tell him, but not just yet. And Spock says, I've never understood the female capacity to avoid a direct answer to any question. You know, like that big girl Khan. Like Khan. Like that big girl Khan in Space Seed who refused to answer any direct question for most of the show. Yes, it's strictly a female thing, Spock. You're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah, that I, I heard that and I kind of thought like, ooh, th- th- this is a writer thing. Like, oh, you're, you're going to have that in your stand-up act. Like, hey, uh, what about those <laughs> women, huh? <laughs> you know, it just... Uh, you ever notice how women talk? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. They, they, women shouldn't talk. Hello, who's with me, huh? We- oh, probably not the women. <laughs> right. The other thing really super fast, because it, this is almost like housekeeping stuff. This is not, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying sexism isn't a big deal. It, sexism was not a huge part of this episode, but I, I notice it every time it crops up. Or I, I probably don't even notice it every time it crops up, but sometimes it's just like, it's amazing to me that for someone who is supposed to be, you know, completely logical and completely without emotion, Spock is so willing to just go, women. Like the time the computer was being all, you know, woman-y. Right. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. Uh, the other uh, bit of housekeeping really quickly. Um, boy, command is really a fragile thing, right? 
yeah. And and Kirk's <laughs> got Kirk's got nothing. I mean, and and you know, in fairness, they're on a ship light years away from anybody else who's going to be able to back Kirk up, right? But but Kirk goes to Spock and says, "Come here." And Spock says, "I don't want to." And Kirk's like, "But I said come here." <laughs> and Spock's like, "Yeah, but no, right?" <laughs> and, and Kirk's got nothing at that point. Sulu take him into custody and Spock's like, all right, everybody come with me. <laughs> right. I'm not sure Sulu understands that it was Spock who was supposed to be in custody. <laughs> right. You know, you don't at that point, you know, I'm taking you into custody, sir. All right, follow me then. Huh? Really? Is that how that works now? All right. Yeah. So Ken, when I was watching this episode, I, I couldn't help but think of two other Star Trek episodes that we have covered so far. And mm-hmm. those would be the cage and mm-hmm. the enemy within. Because there were two really, really strong uh, things in this for me. And I thought about the cage, first of all, because this idea of rejecting fantasy in favor of reality. You know, we, we definitely did that in the cage. And we got rid of the safe but false construct in Return of the Archons. Uh, even A Taste of Armageddon. You know, we're back at this kind of idyllic society. Everything is perfect. Everything is great. Except... And then this is not good enough, so Kirk goes in and destroys a computer, or in this case, destroys the effect of the spores. Um, And I quoted Carl Sagan a couple of weeks ago. I won't do it again, but again, that idea of seeing things as they truly are being um, the better choice over the fantasy, um, I think has a really strong current here. Um, And I also felt like there was a sort of swipe at uh, at the the misguided kind of hippie like, you know, utopian communes. Maybe just something because of the uh, the time period that this was made, um, and you did have this. Uh, well, it, several times throughout history, but but again in the the sixties, the counterculture, like the idea of we're going to reject society and go live on our own on this small, self contained. Uh, prof- uh, uh, you know, this little farm where we only need to provide for ourselves. Um, I, I, you know, maybe it was a little bit of a swipe at that. Maybe not. But. See, I disagree with almost everything you're saying. Why is that? Uh, because I think what we're actually seeing here is Kirk's daddy issues on display <laughs> or, or his mommy issues or his inadequacies south of the equator, if you know what I mean. I mean, there's some reason that Kirk, Kirk can't be happy or Kirk is unhappy being happy because the cage – was, you're right, Pike deciding he wanted reality mm-hmm. as opposed to not reality. There's nothing unreal about what's going on on Omicron City 3. There's nothing unreal about it. They're there. They're living. They're, they're, they're growing their food. And they're living. They're living healthily. They're living more healthily or more healthfully uh, than they would any place else in the galaxy. Yeah, but the spores are rewiring their brains. And? I mean, the, and? And? Uh, well, they're basically removing a part of their uh, of their humanity, their 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 emotions. You know. Yeah, I don't know that I buy that. Really? Yeah, they're making them happy. Look, Kirk got happy for a moment in this episode, but Kirk has this other thing where he feels, you know, he's also happy on the Enterprise, and and that that tug of emotion keeps him from going ahead and staying, you know, one with the body. <laughs> or, or whatever you want to call it with the spores. Um, but if Kirk can't be happy, and Kirk is wired to not be happy, look at 
any other time that Kirk has talked about happiness. I mean, whether that be the cage or whether that uh, not the cage, obviously, whether that be um, the menagerie or 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 Return of the Archons or Star Trek Five, Kirk can't be happy. Kirk can't be happy being happy. And if Kirk can't be happy being happy, then by God, nobody can be happy being happy. Or by this alien that calls himself God, if you want to do Star Trek Five. <laughs> but, well, but here's the thing. So the, the, this is why the other episode that leapt to mind as soon as we were watching this was The Enemy Within. Mm. Because there we, we physically manifest Kirk's dark side. All, all the quote-unquote bad emotions, the anger, the aggression, all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we put that out on display and then we say this is a necessary, this is a critical part of who Kirk is. And if you extrapolate, then we're also saying that um, that this is also a crit- critical part of who we are as humans. So that's why I go back to this idea that, okay, yeah, the cage, we had a false construct. We And as we do with Return of the Archons or A Taste of Armageddon, where it is a thing imposing uh, uh, a, a structure or a will on top of those people. But I feel like the spores here, I feel like it's the same thing. And then the where we end up with at the end is Kirk being the one who is right. It's like, no, 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 you have to have that that aggression, that unhappiness, that something that is darker or negative within you to make you work. No, you know? I was completely unconvinced. Really? Wow, yeah. I'm I'm surprised. Why? There's nothing there's nothing yeah. going on on that colony. I mean, look. This is not like drugs, okay? This is not like pretend. This is not like some kind of mind control. I mean, you could say it's a bit like drugs because here's this foreign um substance that's affecting the way these people are, but there's a difference. I mean, Nobody's going to become a spore whore if you will, you know, pardon me. Nobody is. I mean, this is not like, you know, becoming a crack whore or, you know, like like taking something that's going to give you a heart condition. OK, this is this is something that happened naturally. And everybody just came on and got happy at that point. Suddenly the need to struggle, suddenly the need to get it over on your fellow man, suddenly the need to answer to anyone else or to do anything it's not like they weren't doing anything. I mean, they were still working. They were still working the land. They were still supporting themselves, and they were all pleased doing it. Spon- well, they, they were making food, and they were eating. Right. <laughs> you know? Okay. And that well, seems to be about it. So, so it's a thousand times better that we should instead go someplace else and work for somebody else who will ultimately get to decide whether or not we can go ahead and get the food that we need to eat? Come on, dude. I mean, seriously, this this theoretically is what we're all working for. Why do we work for money? Because money's pretty? No, because money gets us the stuff that we need to live. So, I mean, and and what's weird is Star Trek, at least as far as I know, the Federation, uh, the planet Earth, doesn't really have the whole money thing going on at that point. And yet that somebody has found this sort of utopian ideal is 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 abhorrent. To to certainly to Kirk and maybe the Starfleet as well. I don't understand why it is that when they get there, Kirk can't stop and say, "Okay, well, this isn't going to work for me or my crew because I need my ship and we're all in a military thing. Right. But but these 150 people that are here are happy and they're healthy. So why do Starfleet's orders to evacuate them sort of supersede their happiness? 
and their ability to go on living a very healthy life. Well, so here's the thing. I, I, I get it to I get it to an extent. I, I do think it is premature and and a little um, a, a jump to a conclusion to say we have to get them out of there because for whatever reason. I, I don't think the answer is uh, or I don't think the, the reasoning was we have to get them out of there because they're happy. Well, we need to get them out of there because something is affecting them that we don't understand and – Something is making them happy and healthy. Yeah, but but <laughs> but but there is a cost. But there is a cost. To whom? To whom is there a cost? Well, here's the thing. These are people who arrived there on a spaceship. Yep. Uh, years ago, mm-hmm. what, three years ago, or you know, took a one year long journey to get there. Right. Then they get there and they are unable to do anything other than grow food and eat that food. They're healthy. Great. What um, were they going there to do? I mean, maybe that's part of the problem. It wasn't really established what they were going to do. I mean, it actually makes no sense to me. When uh, when Elias Sandoval snaps out of it at the end of the episode, he says, we haven't accomplished anything. We haven't done anything. We were going to make this place a garden. Hey, guess what you did? You made it a garden. You made it a self-sustaining garden. I mean, they weren't going there to try to figure out how to feed the galaxy. Well, I got the, I, I, and maybe this is me reading between the lines or, or just sort of filling in, but I, I kind of got the impression that that's what it was, that they were going there to establish an agricultural community as a farm would then to feed other people. But then they got there and they said, I, I think Spock or Sulu or maybe McCoy said, well, they're only growing enough for them. And it, it was very it was much actually, self-contained. It yeah. was the biologist that they sent. Oh, right. Oh, yeah, I don't, I, DeSalle, I think. It might have been DeSalle or it might have been the other one who I don't remember if we ever got his name. See, my, my feeling on this was that there were that one of two things were going on here. Either we're doing the Native American thing that we discussed in Return of the Archons again, where these people mm-hmm. are just sitting there being happy and not taking anything from anyone and not building machines that pollute you know, anything else and not trying to screw anybody else. So they yeah. must be backwards and thus they must be stopped as far as Kirk is concerned. Now, there's a difference, of course, between this and Return of the Archons. The people in Return of the Archons were actually having their thoughts controlled, their minds controlled. And I don't get the sense, personally, that that's what's happening with the spores. In fact, I want to talk about the plants themselves in a little bit, but let's leave that for a second. See, I the other, did get that impression, though. The other – okay, well, let's talk about the plant in a moment. The other thing okay. that I wondered, actually, and stepping out of the timeline, as I am want to do, even though I always say, oh, I shouldn't do this, but we do it every episode, <laughs> so maybe we should stop saying that we're not going to. Um, secretly, this could be a Star Trek insurrection thing, except without the insurrection part, Right. For people mm-hmm. who don't remember Star Trek Insurrection, and I only vaguely remember it because I think I saw it in the theater was the last time I saw it. But there was some healing property on this planet, and Starfleet decided that, that would be a good thing for Starfleet to have. And so dark side of Starfleet, they decided they're going to evict the people who are benefiting from that from the planet so that they can have that beneficial property for more important people as far as Star Trek is concerned or as far as Starfleet is concerned. Um this should be a hospital planet. I mean, this should actually be a place that we send everybody that we want to keep alive. And we send them there for two weeks and then we upset them <laughs> <laughs> because the spores are healing people. They're not just keeping them healthy. They're actually healing people. The, the guy, Sandoval, arrived on this planet with no appendix and now he's got an appendix. Um uh, Bones arrived with no tonsils and now he's got tonsils. Kind of too bad because he may end up having to have them removed again. Right, yeah. <laughs> but um, but uh, it, this is actually healing people. I, 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 you know, 
doing the retcon thing, uh, mm-hmm. wondered if maybe there wasn't a secret reason that Starfleet was like, really, it's healing everybody? Hmm. Yeah, we better get everybody out of there. This might not be a good place for everybody to be. Right. Well, I, I do like that idea quite a lot. I mean, I, I like the idea that there was a um, uh, a technology, if you want to call it that, or, or at least a, a biological thing that we find that does have some benefit. Um, that, yeah, it's making people healthy. Cool. That's great. I, I guess I'm extrapolating it of a step. Okay, the whole plan here then, we beam a bunch of these plants up to the Enterprise. <laughs> the spores go throughout the uh, ventilation system. Everybody is done with their job. They're like, cool, we're going to go live on uh, on the agricultural planet. We don't need to do anything except grow food and eat that food. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea here then is that these spores go throughout the galaxy, throughout to all of humanity. I think this is a big problem for us down the road because the next time the uh, Romulans show up and uh, want to provoke us or the Klingons or whomever, um, we're not going to be in a position to defend ourselves. We're not going to be in a position to to think like that, you know? Well, there are, a couple, um, there are a couple things I'll say to that. I mean, first of all, maybe blow some spores at the Romulans and see what happens. Because it might actually end up being okay for them as well. The thing, the thing is, though, I don't feel like the nature of this plant is invasive. Exactly. I mean, the the story that Spock and Sandoval put together is that it was kind of floating through space and then it landed on this planet. And had humans mm-hmm. never come to this planet, the plant would have lived there fine. Sure. When sure. Um, when humans do get there. The plant is not in that, you know, sort of Darwinian way looking for a way to go out and grow. The plant's cool being as happy as the people are. It's not like the Audrey 2 and Little Shop of Horrors, which I, you know, joked that this was, you know, part that earlier. It's not trying to take over the planet. It's not looking to eat people. It's not looking to get off of this planet onto another planet. The implication is that it's taking over, but that doesn't seem quite right to me. This is more like people, this is almost like people becoming evangelists for the plant, not because it's an evangelical religion or it's an evangelical plant that's making them do it, not because of any tenets espoused by the plant, uh, but because people get so blissed out that they just, you know, want to share this. And I'm not saying that that's good necessarily, but I don't get the – this is not kudzu, you know. This is not <laughs> growing all over everything. This is like – this is sitting there being happy. And when somebody happens by, then the plant makes them happy too. But it's well, not yeah, It's it, not but, trying to get on the enterprise. I mean in fact, this is not going to spread anywhere because nobody wants to take the enterprise anywhere except for Kirk – and if he's by himself, the Enterprise's orbit is going to decay and then it'll crash back to the planet and it all stays on Omicron SETI 3. Theoretically. The other thing that they said was this plant thrives on Berthold rays. Right, right, right. Which aren't so, everywhere. Yeah. Dude, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're just saying. I'm just saying that I, I think this is uh, I, I think this is a bad idea. I, I think that uh, maybe the plant, the spores, in small doses, okay, a little moderation there might be all right. Uh, the happiness, the healing thing is fine, but the the thing that got those colonists there, the the creation of Starfleet, the building of spaceships, uh, this idea to go out into the galaxy to accomplish things, none of that would have happened. With the influence of the spores, none of that would have. We would not have any of these advanced technologies because we're satisfied to just sit there and eat corn. You can't join my cult. 
Uh. (laughs) Why do we do what we do? Why do we do the things that we do? Do we do the things that we do because we hope to have more opportunity to get more things along the way? Or are we working towards happiness? Is the pursuit of happiness the actual goal now as opposed to happiness? It bothers me every time Kirk decides, no, 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 happiness doesn't work. I mean, I understand Pike deciding that for himself in the cage. And mm-hmm. I even a little bit understand Kirk un, uh, deciding that for the people in Return of the Archons. But I don't understand Kirk deciding that for everyone here. For his own crew, I get it. But for this colony, I don't get it. For this colony, it seems completely wrong and completely wrongheaded and completely unfair. Because they're, they're fine. They're, they're more than fine. They're, they're healthier than they were when they arrived. Well, and I think you might have an argument there that, uh, okay, given, you know, all, all things being equal, if they just leave the colonists there and right. say, okay, they're happy, fine, they can stay there. And then you write a long report back to Starfleet saying, okay, look, here's the deal. Next time you send a ship there, there's a very good chance that the entire crew is going to get infected with these spores. <laughs> and then they're going to leave the ship in orbit until it falls out of orbit and crashes. Right. Um, and don't expect to see or hear from those people ever again. Um so within that bubble, with you know, with the idea that the colonists can just stay there and be happy, I, I, I get what you're saying to that extent. Yeah. But it but it does present a danger when you have what Starfleet does, which is send spaceships out everywhere, um, that every time they come to that planet, there's a very good chance that then they don't come back. And it's not like they don't come back because they got blown to smithereens or they got put into a cage, but they don't come back because then they lost the drive to do whatever it is that they do. You know, if I showed up for a job every day and I was just like, yeah, but I'm happy sitting here at this desk, so I'm not going to do anything, (laughs) then I would not have that job for very long. I'm sorry. That doesn't work. (laughs) That doesn't work in this analogy. Look. No? Look. If you found a plot of land, make it magic, man. Make it a genie. Mm-hmm. Make it magic beans. Make it, I don't know, make it make it magic. And you moved into a house. Let's say you moved into an apartment, okay? Mm-hmm. And, and every day when you woke up in that apartment, there was $500. And it lets you pay your bills and it lets you get your food and it lets you keep yourself clothed and you can keep cable and you can go online and you can do whatever you want to. It supplies everything you need. How big a jerk would I be if I evicted you from that for no better reason than you have everything you need? That's, that's what Kirk is doing. He can't be happy. Well, it, it, it's, it's what Starfleet – yeah, Kirk is doing that on the behalf of Starfleet. And, right. and I think that there's not – there's probably not a great explanation for that. Um, but I still think that, you know, Kirk's rationalization is justification of getting his crew out of there. Oh, well, no, I mean, his crew is eradicating eradicating the spores. Yeah. No, is he eradicating the spores? I disagree with eradicating the spores on the enterprise. Sure. But I mean, taking everybody else out of that just does not seem right to me at all. His crew is a different thing because I mean, they, they signed a deal. All right. They, Mm -hmm. they agreed to be. Uh, part of Starfleet. Now, when all of this is over, they should be allowed to go back and hang with the colonists. But the colonists should also be allowed to hang there. Is my feeling. And there's, it's just there's a very, there's a very. I go back again to the Native American thing. There's a very Western 
like a colonizing idea. It's kind of funny. Uh, uh, Kirk is being imperialist about colonists. <laughs> the way they live their life is not the right way to live. So hang it all. You're you're gonna. I'm, I'm gonna. I'm gonna really displease you so that you can be eternally displeased. So that you can work for the rest of your life for the happiness that you currently have. That's just. That's just wrong. I, yes, I agree. But I still think that okay, we're we're starting from a different position though. We're, these these people were radically different before they got there. Who cares? Because this is a mind-altering thing that is not allowing them to be who they truly are. Do we assume that their that their goal was to be miserable? Do no, we of course assume, not. Do we assume that their goal was to labor forever, hoping for something, or do we think that maybe they actually wanted to get to the thing for which they were hoping? Do we assume that people do actually want to be happy, or do we assume, as Kirk seems to more often than not, that people don't really want to be happy, or that people can't be happy unless they're trying to be happy? Well, I'm glad you brought that up. Let, let's talk about that because the. Kirk has this line at, at the end of the episode yeah. that I thought was really interesting, really provocative. McCoy says, well, this is the second time we've been kicked out of paradise. And Kirk says, no, 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 we walked out of there. <laughs> yeah. And then he says, maybe we weren't meant for paradise. Yes, maybe I wasn't meant for paradise. By we walked out, <laughs> by we walked out I mean I you know, walked out and sort of dragged the rest of you. I'm just I'm look, I love mm-hmm. this episode before before mm-hmm. people think that I'm hating on this episode. I love this episode. I completely disagree with just about every decision that was made in it, <laughs> but I love it. I think it's fantastic. Uh-huh. But so sorry. I mean, I don't mean to sound it just it, it's always bothered me. Well, it's not true that it's always bothered me. When I first mm. saw Star Trek five, when I first saw Kirk yell, I need my pain. Mm-hmm. I agreed. Because mm-hmm. I was 19, <laughs> you know, yeah. I was young and I still had the whole world to conquer and, uh, and, you know, close to well over 20 years later, I wouldn't mind. And I'm not saying, so I'm not going to turn to drugs. I'm not going to turn to Coke. I'm not going to turn to meth because, you know, that way lies ruin. But when these people find some place where they can just go along and get along and, you know, they've got what they need and they put in, they work for it. But they get out what they put in. You know, I, this, this does not seem like a bad thing to me. It seems like a bad thing to Kirk. But you know what? It's easy for the guy at the very top of the command chain to say, no, no, this isn't going to work for you. Well, no, no, no. It's not going to work for him because it turns out he can't drive his little spaceship by himself. He needs a bunch of people who want to be there. Well, yeah, yeah, but I mean, like you said, that that's the job they signed up for. That is that, the that job is they signed up for. He needs his crew, and this the power of this spore makes people just sort of drop what they were doing and go live on a farm. Right, but it's almost like there's something insidious. I mean, you could almost say that this is a this is a. I mean, you said it was sort of like against the sort of hippie culture of the 1960s. You could almost say that this is a rant against true communism or the or the idea of a utopian society. We haven't had one that's worked yet. But yeah. the assumption is when we come across one, when we come across one that actually does work, that presents a danger, not a danger that suddenly everybody's going to lose their mind, but a danger that the command structures that have been set up, let's say the Federation, let's say Starfleet, let's say just a spaceship, <laughs> that the command structures have been set up. If people find out that there is actually another way to live, 
they might actually start living that way. And then, you know, the tassels on my sleeve that illustrate that I'm an admiral just become pretty. But nobody cares that I'm an admiral anymore and they quit doing what I say. So maybe we should get everybody off this planet before they realize that they don't actually have to answer to anybody to be happy. I, I, I get it, man. I, I really do. Like, I, I get where you're coming from with that. I, I still think that, for, like I said, I agree with you to the extent that for these colonists, you know, we, we could argue where and why that order came from to get them out of there. Because mm-hmm. um, who were they really hurting? You know, uh, nobody. Right. I think, though, that when you extrapolate and, and you look at this idea of what this spore does, what we understand about it, and you bring that to a larger scale, say the scale of Earth, the scale of all of humanity, and how many other starships end up at Omicron Seti Three. But that's not. I, I think this is really bad news. Except that's not going to happen because the Earth is not being bombarded by Berthold rays. The plant thrives on Berthold rays. So presumably, if there weren't a lot of those, which there aren't on Earth then the plant's not going to live. And so the plant's not going to take over the planet. And then, you know, what I see is for the next 300 years, you know, we keep going like, I wonder what happened to that last expedition to Omicron City 3. Let's send another ship. <laughs> Fine. I'm okay. What, what happened to I'm, that last one? Oh, let's send another ship. We'll I'm, figure it out one day. <laughs> I'm totally okay with that, honestly. If Starfleet <laughs> is stupid enough to keep sending people, you know, <laughs> jump in that <laughs> hole and see what happened to the last guy who jumped in that hole. Well, really, then, you know, we need a better Starfleet. Time now to suss out the three M's, the messages, morals, and meanings found, this side of paradise. So as we do on every episode of the Mission Log, we like to wrap things up by asking each other a few questions, and Ken... Our first question is, does this episode hold up? And I think you kind of already told us your answer in the last segment. Absolutely. I think this episode is fantastic. There are little things about it that I don't like, like the fact that suddenly Spock's clothes are different. I mean, that makes no sense. <laughs> but it's like I've said a few, in a few episodes, if I'm finding little things like that that bother me, this episode so works. You know, this is not like Mary where it's like, what? Another Earth that we're not going to address? That was a big deal. There's not a big – obviously, I have big problems with this episode, (laughs) but but there's not a big problem with this episode, I don't think, as far as, well, that part doesn't make sense, and now we're just not going to talk about it. I mean, they even addressed the whole thing about how is this plant living here? How are these people living here? I mean, they – this episode is fantastic. I I agree with you. You know, this is one that I kind of – I know that I had seen it before probably a few times, and it, it just didn't click with me. The first few times I'd watched it, probably because mm-hmm. I was much, much younger. And I just kept thinking, like, oh, this is the one where Star Trek goes to the farm. Um, I, I'm not interested in that. But then I watched it again for this, and I really loved it. I, I thought it was so provocative. And um, I, I like when we get Star Trek out of a spaceship and onto a planet. And, um, yeah, it, it was it was acted well it was well written uh we have a lot of exploration here about spock uh which i thought was very cool and that goes back to our trivia about uh dc fontana rewriting the script and really making it a a a spock story um 
I loved it. I, I loved it. Absolutely. Um, but then the more important question is, what is the message here? Happiness is a joke. <laughs> I don't know, dude. <laughs> I, I, I personally don't know. I mean, this is where I think you and I, obviously, this is where you and I split. What would you say the message is? Well, here's the thing. I, I, I don't think that it's that happiness is a joke. Um, I, I think that I'm going to go back to this idea that I brought up with referencing the enemy within and you referenced again with Star Trek five. Mm-hmm. Star Trek rarely ever presents us with the idea that we have beat all of our problems. We're better than all of our problems. What it does, it, at least in what we've been watching so far, what it does is it shows us that those so-called negative elements of our personalities, um, that we try to control, they are necessary. They are critical to the makeup of who we are. And sometimes they will allow us to do great things. So Kirk's aggression, his his less desirable traits are the things that allow him to be the exceptional figure that he is. But he is so exceptional because he is able to keep those in control. And he's able to use the right amount of those when they are needed. So I I put this up there with a show like The Enemy Within. You know, the the message is kind of, uh, it's not a, uh, as we always say, it's not a You See Timmy episode. It's not one of those. But it is one of those that, that kind of exposes this idea that... For humanity, for a human or for humanity to be complete, we have to embrace that thing which may also be negative. And we have to be able to control it and use it wisely. And I go back to what I said a couple of episodes ago. I can't remember which one it was or which one we were talking about. It's easy for the guy at the top to say that. Mm-hmm. It's easy for you and me being people living in the States. And, mm-hmm. and neither of us are rich. I assume you're not rich. I don't know. I've never asked you. But I mean Good assumption. Not, okay, thank you. Neither of us are rich. You know, and and even being rich doesn't necessarily mean that you've got, you know, everything that you want or need, but we're in a better position than a whole lot of people on the planet. It's very easy for us to say, "No, I'd rather I'd rather think, I'd rather explore, I'd rather do, you know." I mean, I honestly I I think if there is a message to this episode to this episode it's skewed and it's wrong. But the problem is it's just so ingrained in us, the idea that we can't really be happy. So there must be something wrong. <laughs> well, <laughs> really, the, really seems to be it seems to be like the ultimate seems to be the ultimate takeaway from this. If, if you find true happiness, you're on drugs. Or if you find true happiness, then you're following some leader that you shouldn't be following. What you really need to be doing is working towards happiness. And, and if you achieve it, you're a sucker. You can't really achieve it. You got to keep working for it. Well, I, I think there's something to be said for that. I mean, maybe not in, in those exact words, but it's like when you... Uh, <laughs> no, it would be a no, horrible no, no. philosophy if you said it in those exact words. <laughs> no, but I mean, the idea that, you know, we, we say to each other, um, you know, well, what do you want to do? What do you want to... Well, I just want you to be happy. Well, you know, I think it's a less interesting prospect to just say, I'm going to be happy. Happiness isn't this thing that you just achieve and then you're done with it. You know, throughout your life, you have moments of happiness that you embrace, but the the other parts of your life are either difficult or challenging or uh, filled with uh, uh, 
conflict or confusion or, or decisions that have to be made. Um, the, the idea of just happiness being this thing, you achieve it, you got it, and then you're done. That is a false construct. And that's, that's why I do like that line that I, I mentioned uh, at the end of the episode, uh, Kirk saying we weren't meant for paradise, or, or at least it, uh, on a more basic level, we weren't meant to just sort of stop with the idea of being happy. So I, I do kind of, I, I do appreciate that, actually. I think that's kind of an interesting message to explore, as we have done in this episode. You make me sad. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I, I might get over it by next week. I don't know. See, that'll be your moment of happiness will be next week. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so does the message hold up? Not yours. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I mean, you know, offense, dude, I will, I will, I will just, there is nothing that will convince me that what Kirk said or did was right in this episode. So no, it's still a fantastic episode. There's a tremendous amount to explore here, but if, if the message that you took away from it is the message that people are meant to take away from it, I personally don't think the message holds up or I don't think the message should. I think you're right. Don't get me wrong. I think what you're saying is true for a majority of people. And I think that's sad because I I don't think it's sad at all. You'd rather work towards happiness than be happy. I I, I think that presenting happiness as this thing where, like I said, you just stop and go, oh, well, I'm happy. I'm done. I I think that's the danger being presented here. (sighs) But it's okay. We'll, We'll be like Siskel and Ebert and we'll just be split on this one. I don't get it. I don't get it though. So one day we retire, and then what happens? This reminds me of. This reminds me of. I've, yeah, I've, day, ha- I've had family members. I've had family members in my past who retired and then died. And why did they die when they retired? Theoretically, they were always working towards retirement, but then they're not working anymore. Then they don't have that habit. We don't have the habit of being happy. God, I, you know what? I'm gonna. I'm gonna be a, a guru. I'm gonna be a self help guru, dude. You go to the Star Trek convention. I'm going to rent like a hall down the hall from the Star Trek convention and have people in. Come, brothers and sisters, and be with me. I don't understand. I mean, we work towards relaxing, and then we get to the end, and we're not working anymore, and so we wither. But that's just it. I, I think that you, your your so, analogy of retirement is, yeah, we, we've been working, we've been working, then we have free time, then we get to relax, but – the trick is to keep going, to keep doing something. Maybe it's not work. It's not just the grind of doing a job to get money. Right. But, but you maintain interest. You maintain yes. passions. Yes. You maintain things that, yes. that give you pleasure. On this, but, we agree. Just like the settlers on, on Omicron City 3. They were totally <laughs> happy there in their structure. They were totally happy there working the fields, doing the thing. They were totally pleased with that. What's I mean, what's wrong with getting to a place where you're where you're pleased with what you're doing, not where you stop doing everything. I'm not saying and this is where it's different than the cage. I'm not saying so sit down and watch TV because now you're done with your work. They were going out in the fields and working every day. They were still doing. Yeah, but then as soon as they snapped out of it, Sandoval said, wait, this isn't right. I I haven't accomplished what I set out to do. Yes. As soon as he was indoctrinated again by Kirk. All right, Con. Uh, (laughs) I may never get over this episode. I may never get over this episode. Please tell me there is another episode the next time. Well, that's good news. We have another episode yet to do. Coming up next week, it is The Devil in the Dark. 
some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. I'm going now to find true happiness. Please don't tell Captain Kirk, he'll just ruin it for me. Also, please don't tell John Champion. And transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com.